Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording and you are listening today. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome back to another episode of You Have My Interest. I'm Evelyn and together with my colleague Maddie, we're mortgage brokers here to help you make smart moves with your money by giving you tips, tricks and tools to help navigate your wealth journey. How are you doing today? Good. I mean, the weather's putting me in a bit of a down mood, but hey, I'm still in Melbourne and I'm really enjoying it. That's it. You've been here for a week now and you started off with sunny Queensland weather that you managed to bring down with you, which I'm very grateful for. And classic Melbourne has turned into a storm. That's okay. I got a few days of good weather and I'm <laughs> so, so happy about it. it even cons- I've been like, okay, maybe it would be nice to move here, but it's okay. We're back to typical Melbourne. Yeah, you're like, that's, nah, out, that's it's, out of my it's system It's firmed now. it up for me. I don't want to move here. <laughs> But today we're talking to Ravi Sharma. I am very, very excited for you actually to get to meet him as well as our listeners because we've done a lot of work with Ravi and Deepak at Search Property um, who are buyers advocates based in New South Wales. But it's really, really nice to get a little bit more of an understanding on Ravi's personal finance journey himself, why he's so passionate about property and how he's managed to build this incredible knowledge base and expertise that he can now help his customers as well. For sure. I mean, I think his portfolio is super impressive. He's now started, he started investing in property eight or nine years ago. And from the portfolio he's created now to now being able to help people do what he's done is absolutely amazing. And the passive wealth he's created for himself and now for his clients is it's phenomenal. Absolutely. So for those listeners out there, Ravi has a personal finance YouTube channel that he's built, Personal Finance with Ravi, with over 38,000 subscribers. So incredible, uh, I guess, knowledge base there that people can just go and have a look at for free and I would definitely encourage people to do so but a little bit about him himself he's been as you said Mads he purchased his first property nine years ago now Um, since then he's been able to build a portfolio of 4.5 million dollars worth of properties which I think he mentioned is something around 13 or so properties off the top of my head yeah Uh, and one of the biggest passions for him was to actually leave the nine to five job industry which he did at the age of 24 to build his own business as well as a passive income stream which is generating him around $70,000 a year as well as now a uh, investment uh, investment portfolio outside of property that he's also been able to diversify his assets into. So extremely knowledgeable about all things property and finance related not just property investment but also other investment streams Um, and we're so excited to really get into it. So now that we have your interest let's get into it. Ravi, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's great to see you and we are very, very excited to talk about the world of property investment and particularly your property journey as well. So to get us started, what got you interested in property? Hey guys, uh, hey for everyone listening as well and thanks for having me on guys. Um, yeah, it's, it's been interesting because I started you know, looking at property probably 18 and 19, so straight out of high school. Uh, but obviously I didn't have any funds at that point. So I started working full time, uh, worked in retail while I was doing uni. And then for me, I was like, there has to be a better way around, you know, trying to build wealth. And there's obviously you can invest in stocks, you can invest in, um, you know, in, in property. And for me, I understood property a lot more than company stocks because it didn't make any sense to me. And um, fortunately, I had some good people around me that were also investing into property. But what they were doing were focusing on regional properties, not the capital city. So I was born here in Sydney, have lived my entire life in Sydney. So I was always accustomed to like houses being at that time, you know, 500, 600K. 
and you could get a unit, but apparently the, the go-to thing at the time was units don't grow, so always buy houses. And so I was like, I can't afford this, but I could go regional. And so that's how I initially got into property, which was just try and buy assets because your cash is probably gonna you know, be worth a lot less in the future. So let's attach it to hard assets. What was your first property then? What did you buy? Obviously it must've been a house regionally, but where was it located and how much did you buy it for? And even then, what's it worth now? Yeah, so it was on the mid North coast uh, in New South Wales, um, regional property. It was for $255,000. It was Oof. a three bedroom brick home. <laughs> Even I think about it back then, I'm like, shit, should I have bought more? <laughs> um, but that's all I could afford. And um, so I bought it for 255. I think from memory, it was renting for 275 a week. Um, and interest rates at the time, I believe I was getting like 6%. So it's still lower than where we are today. Um, but now fast forward like nine years, the property I think just got valued for about 460,000 and it rents for about 420 a week. Nice, so it is true that properties double every 10 years then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess so. <laughs> I think I just got um, somewhat lucky on the first one. Yeah, nice. And so I guess what I'd love to kind of ask your opinion on, and it's something that we see quite a bit, is when people are looking to get into property and they want to sort of build up their investment strategy, we are big believers in having an idea of that end goal and working you know, working out the strategy and I guess the vehicle to get you there from the start so that you're not sort of just going in blindly and purchasing for the sake of purchasing. So can you give a bit of context around how people may come up with that strategy and some of the differences, I guess, between cash flow in terms of yields versus capital growth? Yeah, really good, um, really good question because I'm also of the same belief, I share the same belief where you have to start with the end in mind. So uh, often when people are having a strategy session with me or we're having a chat, I will also ask them like, where do you see yourself in you know, 20 or 30 years? Why do you wanna even go down this path? And sometimes it's quite hard for people that don't reflect on these things, don't have goals um, that they actually put on paper. And it's important because if you don't know where you're headed, um, there's no point in sort of uh, you know, picking up properties or leveraging things and because you, you sort of just, sort of finding your way around. And when you're dealing with leverage, especially with debt, um, you know, it can be quite risky. So you wanna have the, the goals, the strategy on paper. But in saying that, I think you have to still be an adaptive investor. Um, you know, there's so much that can change in our lives, uh, let alone what happens with the economy. So you've gotta have some sort of a direction with where you want it to head. But the more important thing is to stay adaptive, stay active in that market as well. Yeah, fantastic. And so when we're looking at how that strategy sort of plays into the overall property portfolio, is there, are there any sort of rules that I guess you might live by, whether you might decide to look at purchasing properties that have capital growth potential first to be able to leverage that equity to go again and start to build that snowball effect? Or I guess, you know, as you just said, it's important to be adaptive, but are there any sort of basic rules that people should be following? Yeah, good question. Um, I think, uh, yeah, alluding back to your other question around yields as well uh, and the capital growth. For me, because I started in regional Australia and I saw both capital growth and cash flow on the same property, ever since I purchased that one, I always looked for the same thing in every property I purchased after that. And so I, I blocked out the white noise where a lot of the people around me as well, you know, as I grew up, had friends at uni and things like that, they were all going, no, but my parents said to buy in capital city like Sydney because you know regional stuff doesn't grow. 
And it's just because it's a lot sexier to talk about what happens in Sydney and Melbourne than it does in some town that you've never heard of. And so I've always believed that you can still find properties with capital growth and cash flow. And as long as your entire portfolio is balanced, you're still going to make um, you know the banks. You know the banks are happy because they're able to lend to you, but you're also in a position where your portfolio is growing with equity, allowing you to build a deposit for your next property. But also the cash flow allows you to still stay active with your borrowing as well. A big point on that is that I know there's a lot of data suggesting that the 90% of property investors in Australia only have one to two investment properties and no one can really get above the second or third one. It's very rare and I think there's only about 2% of investors that have more than three or four. So talking about that in terms of serviceability, I think it's really important when you're starting to know that you're not buying at your, at your top, you have some a lot of capital growth that can be a potential there. But what would you be looking at saying, if we bring it back to the start, in a property, are you going to be looking for both? Or if you could have one or the other, what's going to allow you to continue to grow your property portfolio so you can have five plus properties? Um, I would prefer to have both in the same property. I mean, everyone's looking for that golden property where they give you capital growth and cash flow. And I think so far, if you look at the right things, you can probably find a good balance between the two. Uh, in saying that though, when you're starting out, you've you've got such, such mixed messaging where some people are going, I just want the cash flow so I can retire early and replace my income. But then you often get screwed over because you can't build a deposit quick enough for your next property and build you know, five or six properties. Whereas if you go down the path of listening to the white noise, which is buy blue chip, buy a capital city, you know, capital growth property, um, you've probably got cash flow at two or 3%. And when you start looking at servicing the buffers that banks have, you're starting to get to a point where with the buffers in place, you're probably not gonna get past two properties unless you're in the market for at least five or 10 years. And we know that being in property is more about time in the market. And so that compounding growth effect really comes into effect if you've got a couple of properties early on and then hold it for the long term because it gives you more options. And I think the other part of that too is if you look at those more sort of blue chip properties that you're talking about in that later example, a lot of those that are a much higher price point as well, which means the ability for you to continue to purchase more properties is going to be limited by the fact that you've probably already taken out a higher loan in the first place to be able to purchase that one. So it makes complete sense. I guess in your experience and in the number of properties that you've bought, have you found a sweet spot from a purchase price perspective where you are able to achieve both? Yeah, you're 100% correct. Um, it's often the biggest barrier is trying to get the deposit for your first property and it's always the hardest to get in. It's the first one that you've got to get through and it's the big mountain to climb, not just from a cash flow perspective, the capital perspective upfront, but also mindset. Because once you've gone through the system, you understand how the process works for settlement, as well as getting a loan, repaying it. Once you've gone through that process, the second, the third, the fourth become easier to go through mindset wise. It's just having the right you know, um, things in place. For me, the sweet spot is purchasing property between 300 to 500K. Um, you know, traditionally, if we look at um, how those have performed in a cash on cash return, uh, it's done quite well. And I think you're still in a position now in Australia where if you're picking up brick homes for less than 500K, uh, there's gonna come a time where that's not gonna be possible. And you know, as, as crazy as it sounds today, um, you know, when I got told that I can still purchase under 300K for a brick home, I was like, oh, I'm sure I could still pick them up in like five years. Um, but you know, you fast forward a couple of years later and you're realizing it's not possible anymore. <laughs> 
When it comes to the types of properties that you purchase, is it generally homes? Are they the most ideal for investing? You know, your, your brick homes, single stories even. Are there certain types of even houses themselves? So one level, two levels, apartments, villas, townhouses. What do you generally purchase and what are you looking for? Yeah, I'd say um, personally, as well as for the buyer's agency, we focused primarily on houses. So standalone homes with at least four or 500 square meter blocks and ideally brick. Um, that's more of a personal choice just because I've seen you know, issues pop up with like the weatherboard staff and they don't fetch the premium long-term. And so for me, in my mind, I would rather go for a property that may need some renovations later on in a brick home, which means if I go in and I renovate the inside, now it looks like an almost brand new home. Whereas if I do a renovation on a weatherboard house, the external part of it's still weatherboard, right? So for me personally, I would love to get into a house uh, if I can. And when I look at the long term of like units versus houses, I, I've got some units in my own portfolio and they've performed really well. It's just a matter of picking the right location, the right place and the right time. But I think the opportunity right now is going, what is gonna give me the most choice? I can go and knock down, rebuild, subdivide, renovate into a house. Whereas with a unit, I can't have as much choice. On the topic of location, where do you assess where to purchase and the cycles that that area is going through at the same time? Because obviously we do have property cycles, we're in a certain part of the cycle right now. When it comes to locations, does that depend on where we are in a property cycle um, to where you purchase or is it always regionally or is it always in a similar spot? Um, I would be diversifying my portfolio. So even despite knowing if the property cycle is working really well for regional New South Wales, if I've already got a couple of properties there, I'm probably gonna go for somewhere else purely on the basis that I wanna diversify that risk. And I also wanna then reduce, in some cases, the land tax as well component that's gonna play a part. Um, for me personally, when I'm looking at all the data sets, we obviously as a buyer's agency purchase across multiple states in Australia. It allows us the most choice for our clients to go and build the portfolio up at a time where we can even purchase counter cyclically. So if we've got areas that are taking off for whatever reason, like we had recently in say Queensland because the Olympics are gonna be held there, there was so much noise about it, you don't wanna go in when everyone's there. What we wanna do is go in when we're probably at the bottom of the market or about to start that upswing, and that's gonna allow us to get the immediate equity uplift, but also long-term sets us up really well and minimizes that risk. I think that's a fantastic point that you make there that generally all of the different states will play uh, into their own individual cycles as well. So where you've mentioned counter cyclically in terms of around Australia, it might be a case of you purchasing in Victoria in one instance, whereas the other states may be going in a downturn, for example. So I think that's a fantastic point. But I did want to also ask you a question. You mentioned land tax, and I think that's an important one for listeners to also understand if they are looking to build quite a large property portfolio. And maybe one of the reasons that they should also consider purchasing outside of their you know, neighbourhood, for example. Can you touch a little bit on how land tax works and how you can look to minimise that? Yeah, for sure. Um, look, I'm definitely not an accountant or a tax expert, so you've got to go source that for yourself. But I can give you disclaimer. a good idea. <laughs> yeah, that's the disclaimer. I've got, I can give you a good idea. Is that um, a lot of the obviously every state has their own diff like set of rules, and it's based on the land value. So let's say, for instance, New South Wales, because I'm here is up to $600,000 worth of land value you can have in the state for free. So there's no like land tax that they're gonna charge you for. Um, they charge you tax on everything nowadays, but um, they won't charge you on anything less than 600 under a personal name. Now, what happens is as your properties grow in value, and let's say you've got multiple properties in that same state, 
Everything above that 600 threshold in New South Wales, you'll start having to pay an additional tax just for being in New South Wales. And so every state has a different set of rules. You can also look at different structures, like if you purchased under your, you know, your partner's name, if you, if you structured it under a trust and things like that. But if you're looking at the most basic thing, which is buying under your own name, you've got to look at each of the states, understand that each one's got a different threshold. And that way, if you're purchasing in multiple states, diversifying that, it allows you to then stay under that threshold, continue to you know, reap the rewards of a cash flow, because why would you want to pay a tax despite knowing that there could be a tax down the, down the track, right? I, um, I did hear that in Queensland, we were recently trying to really knock down some property investors in terms of land tax. I completely forget what the specifics were. It didn't go ahead, but we were trying to tax you more if you didn't live in Queensland, but you had investment properties there. Do you remember what that was about? Yeah, so I ended up making a few videos on YouTube about it because so many people like got frustrated. They also like started losing their minds because they're like, oh my God, uproar. I'm going to get taxed. Um, and so I looked into it and the reason why it was such a big issue was because they were trying to not only tax the property that you had in Queensland, but they also said, we'll assess all of your properties in Australia. And it. if they went up above the threshold, we'll then still tax you on you know, the land. And the, it didn't make any sense because you're like, you're pretty much double dipping. If we're buying in your state, then you should be able to get that. Not if you purchase somewhere else. Yeah, double taxation. That was it. I remember now they wanted to tax you not just on your Queensland properties, but on all your properties in Australia. Sounds yeah, it was a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't go ahead though, so we're all in the clear. Yeah, it got scrapped. Probably but, um, because too many of the people that were making the decisions owned multiple properties around Australia. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's weird because um, when you start looking into, you know, like, I guess, going down the path of taxing more investors, what's the first thing they do? And I remember as soon as it happened, people started selling or putting their properties up for listings. And I was like, look, I don't think it's ever going to pass because it sounds ridiculous. And if that if it passes in Queensland, I think the other states won't give the information. So they're just not going to cooperate. And so people were selling their properties and suddenly as soon as it got turned over, now you've started seeing more demand go in. So we were able to pick up a few uh, nice properties during that time for clients hey, that, was um, good that for were you. happy about it. Yeah, <laughs> it worked out well. Um, but that's where it comes down to like just being in the right conversations, right team, right place you're then in, insight around those things will allow you to stay logical rather than getting emotional about something. Absolutely. And that's a big one for us, I guess, just linking that back to mortgage broking, not reading into the media when it comes to things like interest rates and the property's going through a downturn and all that sort of thing. Taking the logical view and doing your own research. Oh my goodness. It's something that aren't, we aren't, rates, aren't rates going up to 20%, Evelyn? What do you mean? That's what I heard <laughs> <Absolutely>. online. <laughs> and you know what? They're probably going to do that in the next week for all we know. <laughs> no, it's a, it can, media can be doom and gloom and they do that for a reason, but that's um, something that I guess that's where you come to speak to experts like yourself, Ravi. Yeah, look, I think um, when people start using some critical thinking, understand that everyone's running a business, you know, these media companies need clicks, right? So that's why they need, you know, um, Sydney plunged, but they only moved down by 1%. Like, that's not a big deal. Um, and so after, after having growth of 20, 30%, if you're going to have some sort of correction, that's, it's actually healthy. But the way the media portrayed it was, oh, now we've gone up by 30%, we should probably come down by 40%. And there's a few commentators out there that, you know, so-called economists or analysts that sort of suggest property prices are going to come down by 30 or 40% for every year for the last six or seven years. It's like, I personally go, I think it, it travels into the duty of care 
component where yes we would like to have more clicks on articles but you really need to understand that some people don't have the the resources around them to think critically uh, or logically and they're going to get emotionally affected by it absolutely and one question i'd like to ask you is without giving away all your secrets if someone isn't using a buyer's advocate, but they do have that goal to invest in property and they want to do all that research themselves and perhaps that's something that they're super passionate about and they may have access to some resources. Are there specific resources that you can recommend that people start with? Uh, subtle plug for your YouTube channel maybe. Um, <laughs> but are there particular things that you would consider that you're always keeping your eye on and keeping yourself in the know about in terms of where to invest and what to invest in? Yeah, look, I've always come out on the channel as well and said it publicly that I don't think you need a buyer's agent, right? You need to understand what sort of advantages you can get from a buyer's agent, but people were buying property well before buyer's agents existed, right? Now, I'm probably talking myself out of a lot of business, but that's just how I've been is, you know, logically approach this is that if I go in and I want to purchase property, the easiest resource we have available to us is realestate.com and domain. And if someone was starting, I would suggest go try it for the first three months. And if it becomes too hard and too difficult, well, you've been three months out of the market, but you learned something, now you can go and get a buyer's agent because they're gonna be able to help you. Now, when I look at say realestate.com and domain, I think the easiest resource is the sold listings. So going through and just having an idea of in one particular market, what is a three bedroom selling for? Why is it selling for that price? And then a lot of the times you've got, you know, the listing actually say contact agent. That's gonna cause you to then have to call agents. Now, this is where it starts traveling over to, maybe you can leverage other people's expertise, is that, you know, how many times a day can you call an agent? How many times can you follow up and keep on top of all of these listings in just one market, let alone 30 different markets? And that's where if you did wanna move fairly quickly, get into the market without actually having to go, oh my God, I need to figure this out for the next three months, I can then go down the path of using a buyer's agent who's probably been in that same area for the last two or three years. When it comes to real estate agents, and it is very frustrating when in servicing a sold price, you see a contact agent. Is there a way, if you aren't using a buyer's advocate, to get on the good side of real estate agents and make sure that they can work with you? Because obviously they're wanting, they're wanting to sell their properties as well. That's how they get their commissions. How can you get on the good side of them when you're going to listings and to open homes and even calling them? How can, they, how can you get them to give you the time of day? Uh, being a human, uh, you know, having the communication, building relationships. I, I think, you know, it's understated um, and it's underrated, but at the same time, we've always got to put on that hat where you've got to say, this agent is probably hearing from me for the first time and they have no idea who I am. They have no idea what my capa capacity is and they don't even know if I'm just a competitor that's just trying to lurk around and try and figure out pricing, right? So straight away, they're going to be on the defensive. And if you can show over time that yes, I am a good person, yes, I am genuinely interested. They also then have to figure out, well, is it worthwhile for the agent to put in more into this relationship where this one person may only buy once, right? Is it more fruitful for me to spend time here or is it more time better spent uh, trying to build a relationship, say, with a buyer's agent because I know that they're gonna have multiple clients coming through and that's gonna help my pipeline later on. And so that's another unfortunate uh, position that people find themselves in. But if they wanted to go down that path, it would just have to be slugging it out, you know, just having those relationships.
Look, I totally agree. And I did use a buyer's agent to purchase my property myself, mainly because I didn't have the time. I was working seven days a week. Um, so I couldn't go to open homes or anything like that. And I also knew that relationships was a big is a big thing in the property world. And I just knew that I wasn't going to have the relationships that you guys have. Um, but also because there was an overwhelming amount of information that you needed to research on a property to do your due diligence. And I just, I did not know where to start because it was just way too much for me. And the thing is in this in this world right now, we used to not have enough information that was accessible and now we have too much. So when it comes to breaking down the specifics that you look at in a property in terms of um, if what location they're in and if they're near transport, what are some of the things that you're looking at if they're in a flood zone? How do you try and find these things um, online yourself? Yeah, you type in... Um you type into Google um, everything you want to know. <laughs> um, you look, it sound so simple. <laughs> I think um, the reality is that, yes, you're right. And I think Evelyn and I have spoken about this previously where there's probably too much information out there. I, I remember nine years ago, I didn't have, I, I didn't look at any of these things. You know, I just sort of, you know, winged it and it worked out for me at that point. But what I realized was when I had the debt and I had the mortgage repayments was I realized the importance of not trying to, you know, rely on luck again. And a lot of people find themselves in a fortunate position where they've got their first property, it's done really well, but they did it by luck. And they're realizing, I don't want to have to risk it again and I might lose all the gains I made from the first property. Um, but to your point, you know, if you're looking at information, it's starting with the council website, seeing what's available out there. Again, go back to the sold listings, having those conversations. And then you've obviously got some paid resources as well. But again, we've had all these tools around us for a long time. You can have all the tools in the world. I'm sure you could probably get a marketing degree online for free uh, via YouTube, but why aren't everyone like marketing experts? It's because people don't know how to utilize that information and that's, how, that's what stops a lot of people from going from one property to six plus properties. Can we talk a bit about your property journey? Are there any, I guess, mistakes that you've made personally in your own investment? Have you offloaded properties because they haven't performed the way that you expected them to? Tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are. Yeah, um, there's always mistakes when you when you look back. Um, hindsight's great. Um, and there's always the other part, which is the alternative. You know, if you bought in one place, you could have bought somewhere else. It would have probably performed a lot of, a little bit better. If I you know bought the property right next to me, maybe that performed a little bit better. So there's always going to be um, opportunities out there, and there's missed opportunities as well. So for me personally, I've never been one to dwell on. I could have done better, I could have been in this location, could have, would have, should have. I, I'm just grateful that I started, I'm grateful that I kept building my wealth, but what I wanna do is every mistake or every opportunity I miss, I wanna learn from that. So that's a lesson that I'll write down. You know, even now running the buyer's agency, there's, there's times where we pick up properties where you know we've realized X, Y, and Z in our process that we could improve, and we're just continuing to improve. It's the same as running a business. And we, you know, when we're trying to run a business, we run it logically. Yes, emotions are going to kick in, but we're trying to run it logically. That's the same way I think people need to start approaching you know, um, investment properties. And as soon as someone goes, oh, well, I want to buy a house and then turn it into an investment, and then it's going to perform like an amazing investment. Well, there was emotions attached to it in the first place because you bought to live there and that's completely fair. But for us as a buyer's agent, um, we've actually just gone and focused for investors. Uh, we only purchase properties that it makes sense on numbers and it makes sense long-term. Because I don't want to have to argue or have a discussion with a client around how they don't like the look of the kitchen. Uh, for me, that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to build wealth and we do that logically. 
On that scenario where you, we see it a lot where people want to utilise the first home buyer benefits, for example. So they want to buy a property that they're going to live in for a short period of time and ultimately convert it to an investment. Now, whenever I have conversations with clients around that particular scenario, I always say to them, so you actually want to buy an investment property. It's not a first home. <laughs> the mindset behind that is actually investment. So that's the way they need to be thinking about it. But in your opinion, do you actually think that that's a wise strategy or are they actually just better off renting where they want to live and purchasing specifically for investment with no emotional attachment whatsoever. I'm probably slightly biased here because I've always ever bought investments because they're an investment. I know the ridiculous things I want in my own house and like emotionally, I'm like, yeah, I want this, I want a cinema room, I want this and that. But is that gonna add value? Well, logically, I'm not looking at that purchase. But I 100% agree with you is when we start asking those questions, people are just trying to build wealth through property. And that's why they go, oh, well, I'll just get the first home buyer's grant because that's what I got told by the media as well as the government that it was a good idea to do that. Now, in some cases, very rare cases, it does make sense. And where those cases may exist is one, right now we've got a rental crisis and it's about to get worse. So I can see where sometimes people are trying to live somewhere they can't find a rental, they don't know if they can rent vest, which is the strategy I use and probably something you guys advocate for as well, is that in some cases, having to buy a place, giving you that peace of mind, at least gets you into the market, it's a stable place, right? In another case as well, is if you're in a location where, you know, logically there's a lot of money to be made there and it's about to go in an upswing and whatnot, then yes, there's, there's uh, like you can go and buy your own property, have those grants and that's fantastic but it's a very rare portion of people that are in those positions. Apart from those 1% of the scenario or situation that that occurs, I would be opting to go, I'm gonna go anywhere in Australia, take advantage of the cycles because I'm trying to build wealth. I'm not trying to go and buy my dream home. The other one is, well, I'm not trying to buy my dream home now. It's not my forever home. I'll be buying my forever home later. Okay, cool. So you just want the fastest way to get there, the most sustainable way, and I can tell you now, it's probably not gonna be trying to get the grants and then live there for six months and then try and rent it out. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think if you really sat down and did the numbers on the types of properties that people are purchasing with the grants and schemes and incentives and that sort of thing, versus what they could have bought potentially regionally or in another state or for a lower price point, my gut feeling would tell me that the numbers would stack up in the favour of purchasing the asset for the performance of that asset and not for the incentives that you'd receive. I'd say your gut feel, um, you know, probably lines up quite well with the Excel sheet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when the first time buyers grants only, what, $10,000 anyway, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not changing that much unless your sole purpose is just to purchase a, a new home that's getting built. And at, the, at this point in time, with the cost of building, it's excessively high. Is 10 grand in the scheme of things worth it? And then you do have states, I believe in Victoria, that if you purchase a property um, as your first investment, obviously you won't then get the owner-occupied concession, but- No, incorrect. If you purchase a property in Victoria as an investment, you never live in it, you're still eligible That's for the I mean. first home buyer concessions. That's what I mean. Like yeah. you, you, So like some people think that their first property needs to be their first home to get the concessions, but if you do purchase an investment property first and you've never lived in anything else, you can purchase your first unoccupied home and still get some of the grants and concessions. So I, think that's I actually important. thought that was Australia-wide for a while. No, it's not. It's I wish everything, it was. Everything is so state-specific, <laughs> which makes it a lot more c confusing, which is why you need people that know everything and are across it. Yeah, it's, um, look, I, I, look, I agree with you guys. Um, I think it's so confusing at the moment with so much information and it's conflicting as well. 
where some people, are, I'm coming out here saying, I think, you know, regional, other markets, metro markets in other states are probably gonna make more sense. And then you could probably switch on to YouTube or read some blog and it's probably saying, it doesn't matter if you're purchasing a unit, location is everything, buy as close to Sydney CBD as possible and long-term you'll be okay. Um, everything's got its merits the way that you wanna look at it. But I think the point that I wanna make is, I think we're in a, a situation where with social media, everyone's sharing their wins. And because of that, combined with the fact that most people are unhappy at their jobs, they're trying to look for the quickest way to get out of work. And I think that's alluding to a bigger problem where you're probably wanting to figure out what you're passionate about and move down that path rather than taking unnecessary risks when it comes to property investing. Because then you're gonna go down the path of, well, I don't wanna spend for a buyer's agent. Why would I pay $15,000 for a buyer's agent? It's like, oh, I just want the grant. I don't wanna pay stamp duty. You're looking at this short term. If you can get an asset that performs slightly better than the market, in about three to four years, you're probably well ahead and you've got more equity in the property to go and you know multiply that wealth. Well, I think especially, as you just said, I mean, for my instance, I bought my home, my first home, and it was owner-occupied. I, I used a buyer's agent, cost me $15,000, but in mm -hmm. one year, my property went up about 10% in value, more than 10% in value. So I already made back the money that I you, that I purchased for a buyer's agent in the first year. And I've been able to now withdraw equity and use that for renovations. But is it also true that when you use a buyer's agent for an investment property, that cost is tax deductible as well? I believe it's more treated like a capital uh, cost. So similar to how um, you know uh, stamp duty would be treated. So it's gonna reduce your capital gains tax. Again, every accountant's got their own creative ways of doing things, but um, that's how I've always understood it. Yeah, I think that's a good point to make. And I think if you're also looking at it from a lending perspective, from a tax deductibility, we often will help clients once they've got one or two properties and they're looking to release equity to go again, we'll look at capitalizing that cost into their equity. So say you only needed 80K from a deposit and cost perspective to purchase your property, but you were able to take out 100K equity, that means you've literally spent no money whatsoever on your next purchase because you've even been able to take out equity to buy to pay for the buyer's advocate. So in that instance, I guess the interest is tax deductible, but I wonder then whether the where where that sits from a capital gains deduction perspective as well. I'm not definitely not across that, but definitely a question for an accountant. <laughs> yes, we'll definitely need to get an accountant on, Maddie. <laughs> No, but it's a really good point that you guys get to is your first property is so important because if you get a property that actually performs well, especially in the first year or two years, you're now like on a completely different trajectory because it's the hardest one to get and to generate any wealth from. So if you can multiply and get the second one and the third one fairly quickly, you're setting yourself really well, especially if you're young. Um, Whereas if you purchase the first property and it's a dud, and I speak to a lot of people that have gone and purchased one, hasn't worked out, then they've come to us and said, okay, well, can you fix the problem? Um, that's where you start assessing, okay, is it worthwhile actually paying for expertise? And it probably would be in that case. And I think that's where the number one thing that I tend to come back to is getting clear on that goal before you purchase that first property. I was exactly the same as Maddie. I used a buyer's advocate for my first property, which was an investment. I had no intentions of living in it. I didn't even care... Uh, where it was or what it cost. I had my budget and I knew what my budget was and I knew what I needed it to do and I wouldn't have been able to buy my next property had that not have performed so well. But 
um, the things I guess that I was looking for is not only capital growth value because I didn't really care so much about the equity. I knew that my issue, sorry, I didn't care so much about the yield. I knew my issue to get into the next one was always going to be capital growth. So that was my number mm-hmm. one component or criteria. My next was looking at value add from a subdivision perspective. So I was looking for something that I could develop um, in the future as well. And I actually ended up buying something that already had plans and permits on it, which was fantastic. Um, and that immediately added value to the property as well. And then I was lucky enough to purchase in an area that had a big rise in value. So immediately I could pull that capital out and go again quite quickly. Um, but I know that I've got added value to to build on this property in the future where I can actually now up uh, increase my yield potential on it by developing it and building, um, subdividing it. And just think about what you've just mentioned, subdivision, yields, cash flow, capital growth. Like this is a lot for someone that's starting out for the first time to take on, let alone saying, now I need to get a home loan. Now I'm, I'm doing what everyone told me not to do, which is take on debt. This is where, you know, if you've got, whether it's you going to the bank and you're saying, oh, well, there's no difference between me going to the bank and a mortgage broker. Well, I can now leverage the expertise a mortgage broker would have and not just at one bank. It's going, I know what's happening industry-wide now just through this one team that I can associate myself with. And I think that's why like anyone that's listening, I think the, the call to action here is if you feel unsure and confused, and naturally you would, it's, it's about going down the path of, hey, how do I get the right team around me? That's awesome, Ravi. I couldn't agree more. And I think that really leads nicely into our final question for you, which is, what is your number one tip for anyone getting into property, whether it be their first home or their fifth? That's a really good question. You put me on the spot here. Um, one tip. Okay, my one tip would be, keep it simple by getting your strategy on paper. It doesn't matter what anyone else is saying, figure out what is most important to you and figure out what everyone else is doing. Bring it all together, put it on paper and then figure out what's most important for you in terms of priority. And then once you've got that is only when you should start looking at property. That's what I would say. I love that. That's awesome. Thank you so much what's for your, joining what's us. What's your one tip? What's your one tip? I want to know what your oh one tip gosh, is. Oh gosh, now you put us on the spot. Put, we yeah, ask everyone this spot. and no one's ever asked us it back. Okay, my number one tip, it's its always been be really, really clear about your goals. So very similar to yours. But my second tip mm-hmm. is just get started because you can't, mm. once you've got your goal clear, then get started as quickly as possible because the only thing that's going to be stopping you from continuing on the journey is actually getting started in the first place. I think my tip would be around not letting the market and the things you can't control influence your decisions. So I know a lot of people that in COVID were saying that, oh, well, the market's going to drop by 30%. So I'm just going to wait. I'm not going to buy now. I'll buy next year. Or the interest (laughs) rates are going up. And a lot of us, including myself included, I have only been in the property market for a year now. I've never seen rates this high and they'll continue to go up. I'm comfortable with that. Some people have never seen rates this low. Yeah, true. Exactly. Like, I mean, Ravi (laughs) said at the start, he bought and it was 6% interest rate. So I would say, don't worry about the things you can't control. If you're ready to buy, buy. If your position allows it, if you have the income, if you have the deposit, go for it. Don't worry about what the market's doing because as we've said on the podcast today, time in the market beats time in the market. Can I add one more I tip? love that. Of course. Um, don't feel like you need to buy property just because everyone else is. 100%. Yeah, that's good. That's Everyone's good. got different yeah. goals and I think it's really important to, to realise that and to establish that you don't have to do what everyone else is doing. Yeah, it might not be the right financial tool for you right now. And I always got taught the same thing when I got started in this first one, which was the best time to buy property was yesterday. So I think everything that we've sort of been saying on this podcast is around just getting started, have the right people around you as well as the strategy and just go for it. 
Love it. I couldn't have said it better myself. Now, how do people find you or connect with you if they've got more questions or perhaps they want to use you as a buyer's advocate? What can they do? I would say the first place to stop by is the YouTube channel. So personal finance with Ravi Sharma. Uh, I'm sure if you just type in Ravi Sharma on YouTube, it'll probably pop up. Um, and then from there, I've got an email as well as the website as well. So you'll be able to find all that. But I think start with the YouTube videos. You'll be able to get a good feel of what my strategy is as well as my vibe. And if you enjoy what I say, then uh, definitely reach out. Awesome. Well, we'll put all of that in the show notes for everybody listening as well. But thank you so much for coming on and having a chat to us. Your knowledge is amazing as always. And I really enjoyed chatting to you for the first time as well too. Thanks, Ravi. That's been amazing. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of You Have My Interest. Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. To find out more about how Everland can help educate and empower you to achieve your goals with finance and property, just visit everland.com.au forward slash podcasts and book in a free discovery call.